Hi, my name is Malcolm Duncan and I want to thank you for stopping by the Thin Places podcast. Whether you're exploring faith or seeking to deepen your faith, my prayer is that as you listen, it will be a blessing to you. Please make sure that you click or subscribe to the podcast to be kept up to speed with all the latest episodes. I'd love you to take a look at some of my other resources that are available on the internet too. You can go to my Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash Rev Malcolm Duncan for daily updates and reflections. You can visit my webpage, malcolmduncan.co.uk, where you can order books and listen to some other resources and link to my written blog. And lastly, you can take a look at my YouTube channel, which has some videos of me speaking in various contexts and some biblical exposition, as well as some videos of me exploring contemporary topics and issues. Thanks very much for stopping by and I pray that God would richly bless you. This is episode 12 of the Good Grief series entitled Hope's Heartbeat, The Resurrection of Lazarus and Why Death Does Not Have the Last Word. The whole of John 11 is littered with confusion, I think. The disciples are confused about whether Lazarus is dead or sick. Mary and Martha are confused about Jesus' timing and why he doesn't come to help them. And everyone except Jesus is confused about death and what it means, and about resurrection and what they believe. And into the midst of it all, Jesus has a mysterious and a challenging conversation with Martha when he tells her that he is the resurrection and the life. As I read through John 11 back in 2003 and have done many times since, I began to see the most powerful truths about death and about hope. They changed my understanding of my sorrow in so many different ways. Firstly, they changed the way I understood what was happening in this story and therefore what death means in my story. And secondly, these truths change what I understand about death and the believer. And thirdly, they changed how I viewed my relationship with life and with death themselves. Lastly, they changed the way I understand why believers go through death. In this episode, I want to explore the first three of those observations. And I'll explore and explain the fourth observation in the next episode. I think the Lazarus resurrection story is a journey from confusion to a clearer picture. And we see that when we begin to understand what is actually happening in the Lazarus story. Having begun to understand something about absence and having discovered a deeper revelation about grief itself, I read John 11 again to uncover what it was saying about death. And the first thing that struck me was that Jesus said something about Lazarus' condition. This illness does not lead to death. In John 11 verse 4. How did that make sense? Jesus told his disciples that Lazarus was dead twice. In verse 11, he says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going to awaken him. And in verses 14 to 15, the scriptures tell us that Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Was Lazarus dead or not? The utter confusion of the disciples is evidence that Lazarus was dead. They were confused about what Jesus meant. Was Lazarus dead? Was Lazarus sleeping? Was Lazarus in a coma? Jesus makes it, Jesus makes it very clear that when he said Lazarus had fallen asleep, recorded in verse 11, he was using a euphemism because he says in verse 14, Lazarus is dead. We also know that he's dead because of the length of time that he was placed in the tomb. 
By the time Jesus came to it, Lazarus had been there four days, verse 39 tells us. Lazarus had died, been wrapped in burial strips. We know that from the command to remove them in verse 44. And been placed in a tomb which was then sealed. And we know that from verses 38 to 41. The mourners had arrived and his sisters had entered the official period of weeping and formal wailing. Joined by those who had come, perhaps some of them even being professional mourners. You see that in verses 19 and 31. So the confusion in the disciples' mind is because of their lack of understanding. But the wider text makes it clear that Lazarus is dead. Martha says it in verse 21. Mary says it in verse 32. The mourners prove it and Jesus says it in verse 14. So why did Jesus tell the disciples, as recorded in verse 4, that Lazarus' sickness was not unto death? but instead for God's glory so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. It doesn't make sense. The key for me is in understanding the conversation with the disciples at the beginning of the story in relation to the conversation with Martha and Mary in the middle of the story. Jesus told the disciples that Lazarus' situation would not end in death. He did not say that Lazarus wouldn't die. And when Jesus spoke to Martha, he told her that her brother would rise again then asked her if she believed that. This whole chapter is about death, what it is, how it affects those who follow Jesus, and Jesus' power in relation to it. The disciples were confused about death, but so are we. When we die, do we go to heaven straight away? Is there a resurrection? What happens to our bodies if our spirits go to heaven? If they are separated, will they be reunited? What about resurrection for people who have been cremated? Does it matter if we're buried or cremated? What about when we die? If we go to heaven when we die, do we stay the same age as we were when we died or does that change? Where or what is heaven? What about hell? Does that exist? Where is Jesus now? Are we mortal or immortal? And if we are mortal, when do we become immortal? All of these and dozens of other questions are littered across the minds and the hearts of believers today. There was controversy and confusion in the Jewish community about death when Jesus was ministering physically on earth as well. Yet this confusion around death is profoundly unhelpful to those who are grieving. I've experienced it myself. As I read John 11, I realise that I need a firmer biblical understanding of death in the life of a believer and how Jesus relates to it in some way. And the exchange between Martha and Jesus is what has helped me see more clearly. Let me read verses 23 to 27. Jesus said to her, that's Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. Jesus, in verse 4, has already told his disciples that Lazarus won't stay dead and that he is going to waken him in verse 11. After the initial conversation with Martha, in which he expresses she expresses trust that Jesus has the power to change the situation somehow in verse 22. Jesus tells her that her brother will rise again in verse 23. That's a direct reference to what Jesus is about to do as he calls Lazarus out of the darkness of death and the shadow of the tomb. 
Martha's response to Jesus is a religious theological one in verse 24. She acknowledges to Jesus that as one of the Jews who believes in resurrection, she believes that her brother will rise in the resurrection at the end of time. But Jesus is giving her an assurance about what he is about to do, and she understands it as a promise for the end of time. What's important is that her hope of eventual resurrection was not mitigating her present pain. That's often true of us as well, isn't it? We may believe in heaven and in life after death, but somehow we don't allow the truth to be separated and touch into our lives so that it changes our current experience. Jesus then makes a profoundly important statement to Martha, and I want to break it down into constituent parts. First, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I am the resurrection and the life is the fifth of seven I am sayings of Jesus in John's gospel. And each one is deeply significant. And through the pen of John, it says something about the identity of Jesus. In the statement, I am the resurrection and the life, he is articulating something about Jesus's core mission and significance. He uses the traditional phrase associated with the name of God for Jews, I am, as he announces each of these. You'll have already heard me say in an earlier episode that my translation of these verses includes the, doesn't include the definite article, the, with Jesus' announcement. That's because the definite article doesn't appear in the Greek text. Jesus says to Martha, I am resurrection and life. He locates in himself the power of life the power of sustaining life and the power of bringing resurrection life it's a remarkable declaration this is why the story of Lazarus's resurrection is in John's gospel in the first place it is the sign that John uses to point to the veracity of Jesus's statement that Jesus is the giver of life the sustainer of life and the one who can bring the dead back to life and that's a thing that's picked up across the New Testament again and again. It's important to remember that the story is placed here not to show that Jesus himself will be raised from the dead. That is told in the four Gospels about Jesus in the resurrection stories. This story is placed in John's Gospel to help those who read it understand that Jesus has the power to raise us from the dead. So Jesus makes a bold and clear statement about himself in him. Ontologically and inherently rests the power of life and the power of resurrection. Next, Jesus makes it clear that when a person believes in him, they will keep on living even if they die. In other words, death is not even an interruption for the life of the believer. Jesus acknowledges two things in this short statement. First, when somebody believes in Jesus, they are given life. Second, even though they will die, they still live. In other words, the process of physical death is not the end of their story. And his third statement reinforces his second statement. But this time he adds the emphasis of everyone. All who believe in Jesus will live and will never die. In other words, they may go through death, but they will not be held in the grip of death forever. Then he asks Martha, do you believe this? In verse 26. When I read through these words and worked out what Jesus was actually saying, 
I realised that John 11 was going to change my life forever. Did I believe this? Jesus explained to Martha that her brother wouldn't stay dead. He then explained the power over life, death and resurrection that rests in Jesus. And that when someone believes in him, they will live even if they die. And all who believe in him would live and never die. That makes sense of the words to the disciples in verse 4. Lazarus may go through death, but he is not going to remain dead. And this was the question that Jesus was asking Martha. And it's the question that he's asking us. And it's the question that he was asking me. Did I believe that those whom I have loved were dead and separated from me forever? Or did I believe that Jesus has the power to give life and the power to bring resurrection? As I let those realities sink into my soul, I could feel everything beginning to change for me. There was a world of difference between giving something assent intellectually, being able to quote it, preach it, read it and declare it, and letting it sink into my soul to the extent that it changes our response to death itself. Back in 2003, I realised that I had been a Christian for well over a decade and preached at many funerals, but in the death of my father, I was being confronted by what I really believed about death. I knew I had permission to be broken and devastated by my loss. I knew Jesus would not rush me through my grief. I knew that he would weep with me, walk with me and carry me. But I also began to see that he was giving me a different way of looking at life and at death. A way that had the power to transform the way I thought about death, but also a way to help transform the way I experienced death through the loss of people that I loved. I knew this was an important revelation for me and for my life. I knew it would not change only my understanding of my father's death, but it would change my understanding of death itself and the death of every person that I had ever buried or ever would. Back in 2003, I did not realise how much I needed that lesson. But in the last few years, it has become more and more important to me. John had placed this story in the middle of the gospel to tell those who read it something about the power of Jesus for them and for every person who follows Jesus. Lazarus's death wasn't an accident and it wasn't a mishap. It was a sign. I read John 11 again and this is what Jesus meant. This illness does not lead to death. Rather it is for God's glory so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. That made sense of the mysterious and confusing conversation with the disciples. This was the thing that Jesus was going to do in the daylight while he was still on earth so everyone could see. He was going into dangerous territory for his friend Lazarus but he was also going into dangerous territory for us this is what Jesus meant when he said that he was going to raise Lazarus in verse 11. And it was what he meant when he expressed gladness that he had not been there when Lazarus died in verse 15. Lazarus is dead for your sake. I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Believe what? What was so important to Jesus that he would let one of his closest friends die and be glad about it? Even then, Thomas was missing the point in verse 16. He thought he was walking towards certain death when actually Jesus was walking him towards certain life. That brings me to the question of death and the believer. Death is not even an interruption for the believer. 
Jesus let Lazarus die so that Jesus could show the world that he had the power of life. And the only way that Jesus could show that his statement to Martha was true, that Jesus himself held the power of life and resurrection, was by letting someone die and then bringing them back from the dead. Jesus' own resurrection would be questioned. It would be argued that he wasn't really dead, that he hadn't really died, or that he'd been resurrected because he was the son of God, because he was special. Not so with Lazarus. Remember that Jesus told Martha that everyone who believed in him would live and never die, including those who die physically. Jesus' declaration and the events around Lazarus' death and resurrection were a sign. They were a symbol, an announcement. Those who die in Christ pass through death, but they do not stay in death. They may leave us, but they live on. They are not lost. They are found. They are not dead. They are more alive than they have ever been. They have not ended. They have started. Their journey isn't over. It has begun. And the only way that Jesus could show this to be true was to take someone who had died, who was so dead that his body would have been decaying, and bring him back, at least temporarily. Jesus, Lazarus died again. He has decayed. His body has broken down. The resurrection of Lazarus wasn't an eternal act. It was a temporary one. But it pointed to an eternal reality. Those who die in Christ have eternal life. Life that is qualitatively and quantitatively different. They have a life that will never ever be taken from them. That's what Jesus means. And that's what he was showing Mary and Martha. This is what he was showing me. In verse 43 of John 11, Jesus cries, Lazarus, come out in a loud voice so that all could hear. The raising of Lazarus is a picture of Jesus' victory for those who die and await resurrection on the last day. Jesus' resurrection shows us there is an ultimate resurrection. Lazarus's resurrection shows us that when we die, when those we love die, they will be safe. Christ called Lazarus back to show us that we can let those that we have loved go. They are safe. They will pass through death, but they will not stay dead. They will not be lost. They will be with Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. John Ortberg, the American writer and pastor, spoke to the ethicist, theologian and philosopher Dallas Willard in the late summer of 2012. Willard had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and he died on the 8th of May 2013. When Ortberg asked Dallas Willard how he was feeling about dying, he replied, I think that when I die, it might be some time until I know it. Willard believed that the scriptures taught that a human being is a series of conscious experiences. And for the one who trusts and follows Jesus, death itself has no power to interrupt this life. For Jesus said that the one who trusts in him will not taste death. Dallas Willard understood how the moment of death will be one of great joy. Let me quote something that he said. Jesus teaches us that within his presence and with his word we begin to live in heaven now. And that's why he says that those who keep his word will never experience death as human beings understand it. There is a continuity of life through what we view as death from this point of view. Because we do see people die. Their bodies stop working but they continue to exist as the people they are in the presence of God. I think many people do not realise they've died until later. 
then they recognize that something is different. Death isn't the end of life in Christian theology. I think we lose sight of this very often. We become culturally attuned to death by the customs and the practices around us, more attuned than we are to the voice of God in our mourning. John 11 drew me out of an approach to death that was trying to mesh Northern Ireland customs and practices with Christian convictions and planted me firmly in the soil of scripture and the teaching of Jesus. Lazarus confronted me with both the reality of death and the deeper reality of eternal life. Our cultures deal with death very differently. Some deal with it well and others don't. In Korea, there's a growing tend to have the ashes of loved ones refined and turned into bright, colourful beets. In China, white is the colour of mourning and the official periods of grieving can last up to 100 days and still involve the hiring of professional mourners. In Japan, death is seen as a liberation and acceptance of death is understood to be an important uh, self-expression in grief. Condolence money is brought to the family of the deceased in white envelopes that are tied with black and white ribbon. After cremation, the ashes and the bones of the body are separated and distributed to family, friends, colleagues and in the temple. In August each year, during the three-day festival of Obon, graves are cleaned, fires are lit and the dead are remembered. In Ghana, elaborate coffins are used and funerals are expensive and ornate affairs. Muslims bury their dead facing Mecca and the grave is either raised slightly above the ground or marked with stones to avoid anybody walking on it. John 11 reminds us of a Christian view of death and dying. It isn't the end. It is hard and it is heartbreaking, but it is not final. Our loved ones have not ceased to be. Having gone through death, they are eternally alive. A life connected to Jesus is eternally connected to him. Death does not sever us from eternal life. Secondly, I want to think about my relationship with life and death. In August 2018, we took a holiday in France. It was lovely to have our family gathered around us for a week or so. Everyone is there except for our eldest son, who wasn't able to join us because of other commitments. We enjoyed lazy mornings, relaxed afternoons and chilled out evenings. As families grow, times like this become rarer, but they also become more important and we cherish them. There are few things I like more in life than cooking for my family and then sitting around a table playing board games, chatting and hearing one another's stories and ideas and watching. I love to watch my family. Their smiles make me smile. Their exchanges with one another show me that there are cords of love and commitment woven into our lives that will last when I am gone. I love listening to them. Their words inspire me. Their ideas challenge me. Their outlook on life expands my horizons. Their dreams move me. I am very blessed. One evening during that holiday in 2018, we were talking around the table about life and death. It's a subject that comes up regularly in our conversations for obvious reasons and is talked about healthily. The talk turned to healing, to hope and to life after death. Our daughter-in-law was with us. She is a beautiful young woman with strong faith and deep convictions. We were thrilled when she and our son got married and we are blessed to have her 
as part of our family and now our new little grandson, Arthur. I mentioned earlier that both her birth mother and her stepmother died when she was still very young. Her mum passed away when our daughter-in-law was just eight or nine. And her stepmum, whom she always called mum, when, died when she was 20 or 21. I had the privilege of conducting her stepmum's funeral. And I was deeply moved by our daughter-in-law's faith and courage and that of her wider family. Her dad is an incredible man, brave, gentle, resolute and kind. I have been deeply affected by how he has journeyed through his own grief. He's faced the unremitting challenge of bringing up two sets of very young children after their mothers died. There are few men who could do it well, and I do not think there are any who could do it better. As I listened in that holiday to our children and our daughter-in-law talking about healing, about hope and about death, I was touched by how often they were listening, how, how well they were listening to one another and how open they were to one another's thoughts. They were really listening, but I was also a little worried. Their passions were rising and I wanted to remind them that they needed to speak tenderly to one another. I think you should always speak tenderly to the grieving. And they were all still grieving. Our children were grieving the losses we'd experienced in our family and our daughter-in-law was still grieving her losses. And the conversation turned to why God did not heal everyone. The usual arguments were rehearsed. It's complicated. There are challenges in believing and healing. How do we make sure that we don't place guilt or fear on people? How do we handle disappointment when someone isn't healed? What do we do to make sure that you can enable celebration when God does heal? Then there was a lull in the conversation. I think it was a moment when they were each rehearsing in their heads some of the deeper questions of healing and hope and faith. Not questions about someone else, but about the people that they had lost. Abstract and generalised conversations and arguments are much easier than individual ones, aren't they? When we ask questions about the death of our loved ones, rather than simply questions about death, the tone changes. Maybe that's why we should realise and remember that death is not just a general idea, it has touched someone, it is there. Some of the questions that they were facing had been exposed. They placed their uncertainties on the table in their midst, beside the half-empty bread baskets and salad bowls, and nestled in between drinking glasses and dirty plates lay the unseen questions of their lives. How do we navigate grief? We're so young and so much has happened to us. What do we do with it all? Why did the people we love die so young? How do we cope with missing them so much? There were bats flying around us in the night sky. Occasionally you could see one just above your head if you let your eyes become accustomed to the light. The evening air carried the smell of fading barbecues, and the waves of other families having their own conversations. Holiday makers flip-flopped their way back to their accommodation. Now and again, a child on a bicycle whizzed past us, going too fast, but enjoying themselves. Our son was holding our daughter-in-law's hand. Or was it the other way round? Or maybe mutual? She had her head down, not sad, just thinking. Then she lifted her face and looked at her newfound family. She spoke with a firm but gentle voice. A voice that was deepened in the impact of her losses and sharpened in our hearing by ours. Her eyes conveyed hope, sadness and faith. 
Let's remember, though, she said clearly, resolutely and tenderly, that in the end we have something stronger that holds us up than all of this. Then she paused. Don't we believe in resurrection, she said. And the conversation fell absolutely silent. This. This. We believe this. That was what the lady who came to our church in Buckinghamshire shared with me ten years after my father had died. The roots of that hope, the foundations were laid in the story of Lazarus. And when she told me that she had what she had seen, I could stand in faith on those foundations. My father passed from life to eternal life. Death wasn't the end of him. Through the years I have watched people allow death to lie to them. It has whispered that it is the last word, but it isn't the last word. Life has the last word. Just as Christ had the last word in Lazarus's life, so he will have the last word in our lives. Jesus didn't just say it. He didn't simply promise it. He demonstrated it. And that demonstration is what shatters the lie that death wins. I'll expand on this idea in my next episode. But I want to reflect with you first on the painful cost of the demonstration of power to Mary and to Martha and the painful cost to us. My next episode is entitled Death's Defeat and Shared Sorrow, Giving God Our Grief and Losses.